Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it is another episode with good friend of the program, Coach Spins. Adam Spinella is in the building. What's going on, man? How you doing? Hey, Sam. Good to see you. Always good to be here talking hoops. Life is good. Um, you know, tomorrow, as we're recording this right now on a, a Sunday night, my time here in the in the East Coast, tomorrow's the first full day back to work for me. So oh, this, no. it, yeah, oh. this is this is one of those melancholy nights where it's like, <laughs> man, I wish it could last forever so I don't have to get up and go to work tomorrow. But you know what? No better way to be spending the last night than here talking Western Conference hoops. Yeah, so we're going to do the second half of our episode that we did last week. We're going to talk about the best cores in the Western Conference. Uh, I am excited to do this. I think the first one was super fun. We had a great time just running through all these teams, right? Running through all of these different young players throughout the league. And while the Western Conference is you know, kind of a question mark in terms of what teams are going to be good coming into this year, right? Uh, we have the Clippers that have Kawhi Leonard coming back. We have the Nuggets that have Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray coming back. Uh, I think it's just going to be an absolute mess of a race to try and fight to get out of that play-in tournament to get into the regular playoffs. It's also that the Western Conference, I think, has an incredibly fun group of teams either – at the top of the league or kind of in that middle to bottom tier. The Pelicans are in like a weird spot where they're clearly in the middle, but uh, the bottom tier also is a really fun group of teams like the Thunder and the Rockets that are building through the draft and have these really exciting young players. And I'm just excited to be able to talk through this because uh, I think this one's going to be even longer than the last one, just because there are so many like exciting teams to talk about here. Yeah, exciting teams and exciting young players. I think if there's one trend that I've noticed with the Western Conference the last several years, it's that they their teams usually stay good in comparison to the East because yeah. they draft so effectively. So when we're having a, a you know a podcast talking about young cores, the Western Conference is just going to be a little bit more depth to it because teams do really well and they nail their draft picks. Yeah, they really do. Uh, okay, so let's get started. Let's just dive in because two and a half minutes in, we we need to get moving here because this is going to take a while. The team I wanted to start with is the one that is actually competitive right now, not just having young players and having a lot of really interesting young pieces, but those young pieces are the ones that are actually like carrying the load for them. And it's the Memphis Grizzlies, right? This is for a lot of people around the league one of the model organizations right now in terms of rebuilding through the draft. And look, I'm sure that even they would tell you like the reason that they are so able to rebuild on the fly in the way that they have is because they nailed the John Morant pick, right? Nailing that top end draft pick where you get an all NBA guy by the time year two, year three rolls around 
it makes rebuilding so much easier. But even beyond that, they, they are a model organization for nailing draft picks, thinking a little bit outside the box, which we'll talk about whenever we get to the picks that they made this year in the draft. Uh, but just a really, really good, smart front office that thinks about things a little bit differently and has been extremely successful so far. I don't know if they've nailed every single move they've made, but you don't have to whenever you hit the big ones. And then you also like hit home runs on a couple of the moves on the margins, like they have with the trade up to get Desmond Bain at number 30 uh, and him turning into a guy that I think like even has more upside than what we've seen so far. I think of the word synergy when I think of the Memphis Grizzlies, just from top to bottom, their organization, if, if they're going to be, the model for a rebuild over the last several years. It's not just because they've nailed high-end talent. It's because they identify sleepers. They find guys that they can develop and really add something to with their skill development program where guys take a leap from year one in the league to years two and three and even beyond. And they just, the way that they draft, the way that they identify talent, it all supports the style of play that that their organization really wants to go with that Taylor Jenkins has had here with a five out offense with some aggressive defensive stuff and length on the front line to be able to have a guy like Jaron Jackson Jr. Who's that linchpin defensively and is so impactful to John Morant on offense and realizing what does he need to be successful surrounding him with good role-playing shooters, slashers, defenders, guys who know their role, like top to bottom, every piece fits so well together that's why the Grizzlies have turned this around so quickly, but they've, they've got really good players. And it's to me, those are the guys that deserve a lot of the credit, right? We can talk about the organization and how strong of a job they've done top to bottom, but it's the players that are ones that are out there really doing the work and putting that in. And and that's where I'm excited to dive into the Grizzlies here today. Yeah. And you know, we should also define what we're talking about here in terms of like, you know, young players, et cetera, how we're, bringing them in and how this can be a bit funky because the Grizzlies are kind of a prime example of this, right? Um, It's mostly rookie scale guys, right? Like that's what we're talking about here is guys on rookie scale deals that have been drafted within the last four draft classes is kind of the way you're thinking about this, right? Right. That's where it gets a bit funky because like Jaron Jackson is a year or not a year. I think he's like, a couple of months younger than John Morant, but theoretically doesn't really qualify for this because he was drafted so young and, you know, is now matriculated through his rookie scale deal at this point. But that doesn't make him like not a piece of the young core either, you know, definitionally these things can get funky and finicky and i deal with this when i do the rookie scale rankings um when i do them i'm trying to like even decide on how to do them how i want to like go about defining rookie scale you know players if it's worth continuing to do them do i just do them on the podcast i don't know we'll talk about it at a later date but nonetheless i think that it's worth kind of defining that definitionally in terms of how finicky this can be because the Grizzlies do have an incredible young core, even without Jaron Jackson. I mean, John Morant is an all NBA player at this point. Desmond Bain is absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, I forget did Desmond average like 18 points a game last year and is obviously one of the best three point shooters in the league. I think as he continues to get even more confident and uh, plays off the bounce a little bit more, uh, we're going to see more growth from him. Like it, it, it's just one of those things where he's so good at fitting into a scheme that 
we saw it more last year in the moments where John Morant was out and, and we saw it a little bit more in the moments where Jaron Jackson was out and they went on this big run. I mean, I think Desmond Bain even has more upside than what we've seen so far, right, from Desmond. And that's despite the fact that he came into the league as a senior that was drafted, right? And a guy with, like, short arms and doesn't have all of the traditional, you know, athleticism and, you know, length and things that we look for in terms of upside. But he's just fucking awesome at basketball. Like, that's what it comes down to. He averaged 18 points a game last year, shot 44% from three on seven three-point attempts per game. And then you look at the back part of the season where he was just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you look at his final uh, his final 28 games, it looks like here. He averaged 19 to 20 points. He shot 45% from the field, 47% from three, 92% from the line, and averaged five rebounds and three assists while playing pretty stout defense. Guys like that are just so hard to find. They're they're just so, so valuable uh, because he can scale up toward being a secondary ball handler who can create plays or scale down to being like one of the most effective role players in like number three, number four options in the league. So, you know, I couldn't be more excited about where Desmond Bain's going. John Morant's just an absolute superstar. And I don't know like how to even talk about him without just saying this guy is an absolutely incredible, unbelievable basketball player. Well, and those two guys fit together so well. Like when I think of Desmond Bain, I think of John Locke from the TV show lost, right? Like, don't tell me what I can't do. He's just, it doesn't matter how short his arms are. doesn't matter what his typical profile has been coming into the league. He's just a good basketball player. And to me, what, what the Grizzlies common links have in a lot of these guys are high IQ, high feel guys who don't necessarily have a chip on their shoulder, but somebody might see them as either damaged goods or not necessarily the bell of the ball. And to Memphis, it's feel, it's just the ability to make plays happen on both ends of the floor and they, they know how to make that fit within their system. You know, I, I was a huge fan of Zaire Williams, and I think that he's somebody that's primed to potentially take that leap from year one to year two, maybe not to the same degree that a Desmond Bain did uh, last year. But, you know, Zaire, the circumstances around his time at Stanford, playing through that COVID year, not having regular access to a weight room as a really skinny freshman playing in the Pac-12, it's certainly going to impact his play. I thought he had a really, really good rookie season and is, is going to be primed for a, a good leaps, you know, for his second year here in the league. So th- those three of Morant, Williams, and Bain give Memphis so much flexibility and different guys in their backcourt to really play with. Yeah, and, and the Zaire thing is interesting. So I did that big write-up on the Patrick Beverly, Taylor Horton Tucker deal. And within that, I noted that Taylor Horton Tucker is still 21 years old. And I don't know. Did you read that story that I did? Uh, no. Okay, good. Because this this gives us a good thing. <laughs> uh, do you know how many players in the final eight teams, so the conference semifinals in both conferences, do you know how many players were 21 or younger and in the rotation for their team that were in the final eight teams last year? Off the top of my head. I'd throw a guess out there and say two, but I don't think I could even name them. It is two. Okay. It's Tyrese Maxey, who's phenomenal yep. and great, and we talked about him a little bit last week, and Zaire Williams is the other one. 
And Zaire Williams, the fact that he was able to enter the rotation last year, I think is a pretty big surprise uh, to a lot of people uh, around the league. Certainly, I think that uh, a lot of people thought he would be a project. And instead, he was able to come in and just be an effective energy defender that could put the ball on the ground a little bit and at least keep the offense moving and occasionally knock down a shot. Uh, I think that his growth process this year is going to be fascinating and then you look at just some of the other guys on this roster i mean xavier tillman is an effective useful player brandon clark is a guy that uh, stepped up in a big way when jaron jackson was out last year and has really impactful uh you know efficient offensive play and switchable defensive abilities uh he's not quite the defender that he was at gonzaga in my opinion in the nba but he is an effective like if not starter, then, you know, sixth or seventh man that is valuable in today's NBA uh, and could turn into a starter. I think if he continues to develop as a shooter a little bit and continues to develop that defensive ability uh, to become what we saw at Gonzaga, as opposed to like being just like a solid defender, which is what he is in the NBA at this point. Um, This is where I think it's worth kind of talking about their draft this past year, because I think it was everything that encapsulates them uh, in a weird way. And also a draft that I understood because it, it fits that synergistic model that you talked about, but also is one that I didn't personally love because I didn't have great grades on some of the players that they took. Um, but because they went to the Memphis Grizzlies and I know that they will have a plan for how to develop these specific players. I like it a little bit more than if like the Hornets would have drafted these guys. Right. So they draft Jake LaRavia, who I was very high on throughout the year. And, you know, I think that I like drove the bus for him to essentially uh, be someone that was in the public sphere uh, in terms of the draft last year and uh, i love laravia i think he's an interesting player i think he's going to be really valuable for the grizzlies i don't really care about what he did at summer league because he's just not like a summer league player you know what i mean um then they draft david roddy they essentially trade d'anthony melton for david roddy which is not something that i loved but david roddy is a very effective you know college basketball player that really shoots it well, thinks the game well, um, and he's a marginal inefficiency. I think that's what Memphis does. They find these guys that are marginal inefficiencies. Desmond Bain with short arms, Xavier Tillman without great athleticism, Brandon Clark with short arms, right? Guys that are just really good at basketball and are competitive and are unselfish human beings uh, that are willing to put in work and are willing to improve and are on upward growth trajectories because they continue to improve. And I think David Roddy is uh, in many ways, the epitome of that, even though I just am so skeptical that he's going to have a chance to defend uh, at the NBA level. And then they take Kennedy Chandler, a guy that was too short, right. And goes in the second round, despite being the sec tournament MVP. And they take Vince Williams, who is a guy that, you know, when I talked to teams that had him in for workouts, they were like, this guy just doesn't have any game. Like that, that's kind of what they said. They were just like, doesn't really dribble well. He wasn't really great in like the three on three setting, but he was really effective at VCU last year. And his tape was awesome. 
I thought. Yeah. Like he is a guy who has learned how to shoot. He has long arms. I worry a little bit about him in terms of foot speed defensively, but you, know, you take a guy in the second round, he's a perfect flyer for that. And then like the epitome of all of this is taking Kenny Lofton and signing him uh, immediately after the draft is a guy that has just always been good at basketball, but hasn't really doesn't look like an NBA player, right? Like doesn't have that traditional frame. And, you know, even if he can come in and just like kill skinny centers, like he did in summer league when he played against Chet, like that's worth a back end of the roster spot. Right. Um, Again, I'm skeptical defensively on him, but you know, it's just everything that they're about. They take these, marginal inefficiency guys that don't necessarily look like NBA players a lot of the time, but you know what? They're just fucking good at basketball and they're just like, let's go for it. Right. Well, and to bring this back full circle, like the, the bow that you can tie on the knot for them is that they've got one guy on each end of the floor that can make all the pieces work. No matter what John Morant can create offense, regardless of the type of lineups that you've trot out there, he can work in transition, he can work in the half court. He can set up shooters for success. He's great with with role guys and bigs. And then on the other end, Jaron Jackson Jr., that versatile linchpin piece who can protect yeah. the rim, switch out onto the perimeter on defense, play some minutes at the five, play the four when you know most of the time. Like that versatility that those two star players bring to the table really sets them up to play so many different types of lineups and type of players where you can explore the margins and find those inefficiencies and just good, good basketball players. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, I totally agree with you. And I am excited to see uh, where the Grizzlies go. The last guy here that I will bring up is Santi Aldama. Uh, I know that Memphis still really likes him and thought he was terrific in the G league last year. And this is a guy that uh, is, you know, played college basketball in your neck of the woods at Loyola. And uh, it was a statistical marvel. I think I had him at like 31 or 32 and was higher than anyone in the public facing uh, sphere on him pre-draft. And Memphis takes them, I think at 30. 30. Yep. Last pick of the first round. Yep. Last pick of the first round. And he was incredibly efficient and effective in the G league last year. And I Mm -hmm. think that, um, that could end up working out for them as well. Like they, they just take, they take, I just love the, I love them. I, they, they draft how I would draft is the thing. Like well, not, not all the time, but like their, their overarching strategy is how I would draft. I would probably take different, I would take a different player than David Roddy. Like I probably would have taken Ty Ty Washington. Right. But like their overarching strategy is synergistic. It makes sense. And it is, I think more coherent than what other teams, not every other team, but like there are other teams that are good at the draft, but like then what most other teams bring to the table. Yeah. And, and Santi looks great too. Uh, I do have the, the good fortune of having him. He came and worked out in our gym once this summer. Uh, really shot looks great. So I, I think that it's right on to say that there are high hopes for him and, and another just unique multi-positional toolsy high feel piece that fits right into everything we're talking about here with Memphis. And Let's move on to another team now. So let's talk about the Warriors because I think that this is, these are two teams that are both very good and are developing their young players in different ways, right? Whereas the Grizzlies are letting these guys learn on the fly and just be hyper competitive, getting them great minutes early on. The Warriors have a loaded roster. They just won the title, obviously. And 
their group of young guys led by three lottery picks, James Wiseman, Moses Moody, and Jonathan Kaminga. And, and Jordan Poole still fits in this as well, yeah. by the way, yeah. um, within this paradigm of first four years in the NBA uh, yeah. after being a first round pick. Like they really are letting these guys kind of learn from others ahead of them. Like even Jordan Poole, who has become an incredibly valuable starting player in the NBA on a title team, um, was probably what their third best offensive player yeah. uh it, like honestly like he's probably better offensively than what clay was certainly better offensively than what draymond green was in the playoffs yeah. um you know defensively is another story with jordan but like in overall effectiveness like he's probably their fifth or sixth best player but like probably a fifth best player but jordan got to learn for a couple of years he got to learn what it takes to be a professional over the course of the first two years in the nba um and they're doing that with Kaminga, Wiseman, and Moody as well. And it's just so interesting to see the two different strategies where the end goal is the same. The goal is to create something sustainable. The goal is to create something where when Steph and Clay and Draymond retire, they have these young guys that can step into the roles and they can continue to try and compete for a title. It's the same with Grizzlies, right? They're trying to build something sustainable where they have eight years of John, eight years of Jaron Jackson, eight years of um, Desmond Bain and hopefully more beyond that after they hit unrestricted free agency and would be willing to resign. But then, you know, they draft Kennedy Chandler who hopefully can take over for Tyus Jones in two years and then hopefully can become an effective player with John Morant. And then, you know, they take Jake LaRavia and David Roddy who hopefully can step into a role left by Kyle Anderson who left in free agency this summer. So it's, they're trying to, achieve the same goal but they're doing it in so such different ways that i find to be incredibly interesting the thing with golden state that has been pretty apparent to me throughout this process is i i just try to wrestle with whether some of these young guys have much more trade value than actual value to a warrior's type yeah where the intrigue of a wiseman a kaminga with the flashes that they're able to show might be what keeps the title window open an extra two or three years by acquiring the right role players or the, the right you know extra star to come in there and help the team eventually, as opposed to is this really about development where Steph, Clay, and Draymond now are passing the torch to some of these younger guys that are on the roster. And I'm not saying that both can't be what the Warriors are hoping for. I think that as yeah. they play out the situation and develop each guy individually – they'll get a better feel for, you know, who they really think can, can take that torch and, and carry the Warriors franchise into the future. But I don't know where you, you stand on that right now, Sam. I think they're just a super fascinating team because in the back of my mind, all I think about is as good as these young guys can be, their maximum trade value is really what, what could drive the Warriors to a different, uh, different spot the next year or two. You know, I thought mid last year that they should maybe explore moving like James Wiseman or moving one of the, one or two of these young guys for a great vet. Because I thought that like, if you could get like a miles Turner or someone, like I thought that'd be really valuable for them, but then they figured it out with Kevon Looney. Right. Um, I think I'd keep them. I think that's where I'm at. Like, I think that, 
as long as you still feel confident. Look, Jordan Poole is a different conversation yeah. because Jordan Poole is about to get wildly expensive for a roster that is already wildly expensive. And they're going to have to make a real cost-benefit analysis decision there where that would be the most expensive like basketball team ever i would imagine yeah. if they end up having to resign if they end up resigning jordan pool to the extension that jordan pool is going to get um I, I don't know like but if you're jordan pool like do you see a circumstance where it's valuable just to stick around golden state and try to be the guy that like takes the reins from steph and like you continue to learn in this great incubation system like I, I, look i don't know what's most valuable for jordan pool he'd probably have to take a bit of a pay cut and i don't really advocate players taking pay cuts uh at the end of the day because you only get one career right and you only get 10 years of earning value in in the case of pool sometimes three or four years uh depending on the player at hand and the risk of injury right um so but with wiseman moody and kaminga i guess what i would say is for as long as i felt confidence that they're growing in the right direction and in many cases like this is something that the warriors are going to have much better internal feelings on than like I will. Right. Because we just didn't see a lot of these guys this past year. Um, Other than Kamingo who played like a decent amount, especially late. Uh, I, as long as I felt good internally about the way that they're developing, I would keep them. The moment that that shifted, I would move them while they still have value, right. I guess is what I would say. It's it's awesome for the Warriors that they can negotiate from such a, a spot of power in that regard because no one else will know if they're out on somebody uh, until they've already made that deal, right? So as long as they're as long as they're quiet about it, yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. So I, I think the the organization by you know having those two down years where they weren't a championship contender maximizing the young assets, hanging on to them, saying, you know what? Not yet, not yet, not yet. Let's keep these in our back pocket. Let's develop these guys. They're sitting in a, in a great situation where they don't need any of them in order to win another title. They just proved yeah. that a couple months ago. But to have these guys to develop, to use as assets is really important. And you know, I, I also think it allows them to, in their later picks, later parts of the first round or in the second round, take swings on high upside guys and really just continue to try to swing for the fences around the margins. That's what Patrick Baldwin Jr. is. I think yep. that there's a, a good chance that, you know, Ryan Rollins is a Jordan Poole insurance card. And yeah. there's, yeah. there's something yeah. really intriguing about a guy like Rollins. So, I mean, they're organizationally making all the right decisions, but it comes from the fact that they're just so stacked with their top six or seven guys that they can afford to do it. Well, you know, here, here's the other thing. The Warriors for quite a few years, it felt like, got maligned for their success in the draft, right? Or lack of success in the draft. Here's the thing. It's hard to say anything other than they nailed the Kavon Looney pick. He was just incredibly valuable for them in the playoffs um, as one of their, is really the the big for that team uh, was an incredible rebounder did his job. He's a phenomenal pick for them at number 30. Jordan Poole is an incredible pick for them uh, late in the first round. I'd even argue that like Eric Pascal uh, is a plus value for what you would expect from taking a guy at like 42 overall or wherever they took Eric Pascal. Yeah. 
like I know that they missed on Jacob Evans. I know that they missed on like Damian Jones, guys like that. But yeah. like the hit rate late in the draft is not good. And they nailed like two starters in Looney and Poole out of, you know, six picks or whatever they had in that range. Yeah. It's hard to say anything other than like they've been incredibly successful in the draft at this point. Yeah, and I think that there might have been even with, you know, guys like Festus Azili or Damian Jones, this drafting yeah. for need as opposed to drafting for best guy and, and you know, the yeah. right fit for what we're looking for. Because I think at those times they needed another bigger body. And that was something that they were looking to, to plug that hole with. And, you know, toss those two guys out of the equation. I agree. They're just, they're incredibly good at finding and identifying late talent. I mean, even a guy like Juan Toscano Anderson, who they plucked in their G League yeah. system, like that's a hell of a find for their front office. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally. Um, yeah, the the Warriors, should we talk about like where we are on James Wiseman at all? Like that just seems like a strange situation. I wish the best for him. Uh, the first quarter that he played of Summer League was very effective and I liked it. Um I don't know that I would say much of anything else with him though, at this point, just in terms of, cause I, I don't know where he is. I liked him pre-draft. Uh, he is someone that's like really smart. And I, I think that being around the warriors system probably has helped him be a lot more competitive and willing to like fight for it a little bit. Like, uh, but uh, it, the, the body just might not be there. Maybe like it might, I don't know. I don't know what to do with James Wiseman, I guess is what I would say. And he's a fascinating piece long term for them because if he is what they thought he could be drafting him at number two or even just like a little bit lesser than that, because I think I thought he was a little bit lesser than that, even though I ranked him in the top three of that class, like he does kind of change their trajectory a little bit in a really interesting way. Yeah, he adds a different dynamic to their offense. I think the one thing they've they've not had, and probably by design, is a great screen and roll big man. Somebody that can just touch and go, get lobs, and, and get. It's not saying that they're going to reinvent the wheel just because James Wiseman's in the rotation and play through a ton of pick and roll. But having yeah. somebody that can go do some of that is a, a good dynamic to be able to add if that's the only value that he brings to the table early on. Well, it adds something different too because, like, I would argue Draymond Green is like one of the best pick and roll bigs in the NBA. Sure. Right? But he's, he's, he, he's not so a lot of threat. Yeah. Yeah. But he, it's a different skill set, right? Like you could run like Draymond Wiseman pick and rolls, right? Like you could run obviously like the Steph Dre pick and roll has been one of the most effective things in the NBA for many years at this point. But like you could run a Steph Dre pick and roll and then you have James Wiseman in the dunker spot where, you know, the man has to come forward to Dre and he throws that lob to Wiseman and it's just curtains. Right. So like he gives them a totally different kind of skill set that I think is really, really valuable. I still really love Moses Moody. I still really, really love, Jonathan Kaminga, I think that they're both going to be awesome. Uh, Moody, I think, is going to be a really effective, you know, 15 to 18 point per game scorer. Uh, Jonathan Kaminga, I, I think, has a very high ceiling if he ever learns to shoot. Uh, the athleticism just immediately translated to the NBA. I don't really think anyone would argue otherwise. So fascinating group of young players. Um, and we'll see what they do with Poole. But th- this is a great team and they are really, I think, building something that is genuinely sustainable. 
Yeah. Well, it's crazy, Sam. I mean, we spent you know the first half hour here talking about two teams when we were doing an episode on young cores. They're the two best teams in the Western Conference last year. One team just won the NBA Finals. To be able yeah. to do that. Other than when, Phoenix. Yeah, those yeah, three. Yeah, like that's it's insane to be able to do that when talking about young cores. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, okay, uh, let's do the last team that is like actually really, really good and has – you know, a group of young players and it's the Pelicans. Like the Pelicans are a fascinating team because they're already really good. Like they were really good last year because of the leap that Brandon Ingram took because of, you know, acquiring CJ McCollum and Jonas Valanciunas. And uh, obviously the way that the young guys stepped up, especially late in the year. But the dude here is Zion Williamson. And if Zion Williamson does what he did in his second season, with the team that's now surrounding him, this has a chance to be a top four team in the West. If Zion Williamson plays 70 games, 65 games, whatever, and is in reasonable shape, he now has signed a contract that says he has to be in like pretty good shape. Uh, otherwise, the guarantees on that deal go down. If he is that, and you're doing CJ McCollum... Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram, Jonas Valanciunas, Herb Jones, Trey Murphy, like Devontae Graham is like a definite rotation player. Uh, like they're a loaded team. I feel like I'm forgetting guys. They have so many dudes, obviously Dyson Daniels, they just drafted like this team is loaded, just absolutely stacked with talent. And they have the dude in Zion Williamson, that could be the one that you build around if he is what we thought what we think he is and what he at least was when he was a second year player and averaged 27 points and eight rebounds and was like the greatest driver of offense at the rim that we've seen in like many years in the nba basically since like Shaq. if i remember some of the research that seth partnow did um this team has such a high ceiling and I'm so excited to watch them. Yeah, and, and that's where I think your intro about the Western conference, having so many different groups and teams that can get up to that point is really prudent because the Pelicans stand atop that list to me. And it's all about internal development and health. You know, there was that, uh, that trend going around. I'm not sure if you saw it, Sam on social media last week, asking people to you know, see if, what their uh, wives would say, if they could name some NBA players that uh, who would be the first ones that come to mind. And my wife said, the wonder man from Duke that plays from New Orleans, one of my favorite players, he's like the freaking Hulk and a gazelle all in one. And that's that's, amazing. that's Zion. And it's, we take it for granted because we spent so much of the last year talking about his health, his weight, yeah. his contract situation in New Orleans. This is an incredibly special young basketball player. And to be yeah. able to add a superstar back into the mix from a team that overachieved, was on pace for about 50 wins over the final three or four months of the year, has a really shrewd young coach in Willie Green and a ton of scorers and a ton of wing defenders on their roster. Like This is a team built for postseason success. And if we get 90% of the Zion that we saw before his injury, they're going to be a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. And look like Zion has his issues. He has to defend like he has to, mm -hmm. I think, get in better shape so that he can play on 
defense. I, I think that's the thing with him defensively is like he utilizes a lot of his energy on offense and yeah. takes plays off defensively. Like he needs to get in better condition. Like let's, it's fine. Like we can say that, yeah. but the guy over the course of his first 85 games in the NBA averaged 26 points, seven rebounds, shot 60% from the field. If he's that guy, averaged three assists like and like showed even more upside in terms of playmaking, especially yeah. when uh, Stan Van Gundy was there and they were running all sorts of interesting actions with like JJ Redick as the screener yeah. and they could figure out different uh, ways to get him in space, right? And this team has a real chance to be able to get him in space, uh, you know, playing him next to like if you want to play a Williamson, Larry Nance lineup where yeah. Nance is like spacing to the corner. And uh, then you have like Trey Murphy, who's an elite shooter, CJ McCollum, who's an elite shooter, Devontae Graham, who teams guard out there, um, you know, X, Y and Z, right? Like wh- whoever you want to throw in there, Th- this team has such fun upside. It has such yeah. a fun ceiling if things yeah. uh, break right for them. And I'm still like all in on the Brandon Ingram train yeah. as well. I think he's going to be a top 25 player, top 20 player, something like that. Uh, if not next year, then the year after uh, he, he's an awesome player, uh, yeah. awesome, awesome player, but he doesn't have the upside that Zion does because Zion is something that is completely different uh, that we just haven't really seen before he's like six foot six and is the best like i guess that i guess like maybe he's charles barkley sort of but like with way more athleticism i I don't know he's a weird player he's the hulk and a gazelle all in one and there it is i love it that's what he is and like i keep thinking on the defensive side of the floor you know he's not going to have to be exposed to high level players if the pelicans don't want him to be because you have herb jones because you have Trey Murphy, guys that are long and can yeah. defend multiple types of players in positions. We could see, like, I keep thinking lineup-wise, what the Pelicans could trot out there for a closing lineup. They could have McCollum and then go Murphy, Ingram, Herb Jones, and Zion and not have a true big out on the floor. And yep. just so many different combinations that you can do on both ends with, with a group like that. And if Dyson yep. Daniels ever turns into a functional point guard that can play those closing minutes, maybe he takes the reins from McCollum eventually. Now everybody is six six or above, really, really skilled. There's just, again, so many possibilities. Yeah. Or, or even better, like you play Dyson with McCollum, I think is probably yeah. their ultimate goal, like yeah. within two years, because Dyson's six foot seven and has long arms and is a phenomenal defender already, right? Uh, it's just where he gets to offensively. So, yeah, no, like it's their ceiling is through the roof. We should talk about their 2021 draft, though, uh, because they absolutely drilled it. Uh, Herb Jones is the guy that got all the love and we should talk about Herb first. He was one of, I would say the 25 best defenders in the NBA last season. Um, Look, I haven't gone through and listed defenders. Like he's probably somewhere between, you know, 10 and 25. Uh, I'm throwing out a number, right? But he was one of the best. He was a phenomenal defender, uh, multi-positional, can guard one through four very easily, incredibly disruptive with his length. And he's a genius. Like, this is a guy that I profiled pre-draft and like, just as a guy that I thought would be really effective defensively in the NBA because of the way that he thinks through rotationally, uh, 
just instinctually he knows where to be he reads things he's very anticipatory in terms of knowing where exactly he needs to be and that showcased itself immediately from day one in the nba yeah yeah and, and trey murphy you know another guy in there who's continued to expand his game a little bit too on the offensive yeah. end of the floor like he was pretty much all catch and shoot coming out of college he looks a lot more comfortable with the ball in his hands right now really simple plays more than creative ones but uh, just his his advancement, I think, has helped them. You know, plucking Jose Alvarado in yeah. out of the out of obscurity there as an undrafted guy, like really, really good find for their organization. They ended up having three guys that could be rotation players on a playoff team their rookie season. That's that's huge. Yeah, like I did the redraft of the 2021 draft in I don't know April, late March, something like that, and. I got like yelled at a little bit, not yelled at, but like, and I understand this is like kind of a polarizing opinion, but like, I think I would still take Trey Murphy over Herb Jones. And that's not an indictment of Herb in any way. I think Herb is phenomenal. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that I think Trey, Trey Murphy's upside is like Desmond Bainey. If it goes right. Yeah. Like maybe he can't dribble quite as well as Desmond, but it'll be, it'll be different, I guess, but he's six foot nine. He's a 42% three point shooter. And he is really effective defensively because he can move his feet very well. Uh, He's just such a two way weapon as a role player. Like Herb, I know that Herb shot like, okay. From three last year. Like I think he shot like 34, 35%, but teams just don't guard him out there right like they, they don't re- like they want him shooting those shots uh and that kind of bogs down the offense a little bit and herb's really smart in the way that he moves the ball and he can dribble and like you know he, he figures it out on offense yeah. like he he's not like a negative offensive player but i wouldn't call him a positive either um i think trey can be a positive on both ends of the court at a pretty substantial level uh to the point where i think he can be like one of the best role players in the NBA, like point blank. Uh, I, I love Trey Murphy. I, I absolutely love Trey Murphy. Yeah. And I think that the, the offense fits a lot smoother next to a guy like Zion, where if Zion's in the yeah. lineup next year, yeah. the Herb Jones stuff offensively shows itself even a little bit more. You know, he played some, I don't want to call it point guard, but primary handling minutes when he was at Alabama. I think that's where he knows how to function is attacking poor decision makers and guys who sag off of him. There's still a little bit more to figure out. Okay. If I'm in the corner, I'm on the wings, I'm in a, an auxiliary role here. How do I punish those defenses that are trying to do that for the betterment of my team? Yep. No, I think that's right. Um, Jose Alvarado is really fun. You know, obviously Dyson Daniels is really fun. Yeah. Kyra Lewis is a guy that I liked pre-draft enough. He just, hasn't gotten a clean run still very young obviously uh you know maybe he'll figure it out maybe he'll get healthy and um be an effective maybe backup point guard maybe he turns into a starter uh he has speed he has skill you know it's just unfortunate that he hasn't gotten the clean run yet to where we know what he can be and i'm gonna be like jack on the titanic just clinging on to him for for all hope like he is he is one guy i'm not ever gonna sell stock on i just i love watching kyra lewis play in transition i believe in the shot i I want him to get healthy don't know if the situation in new orleans is really the right one for him developmentally long term just because there's so many different blockades to minutes and and fascinating players in a different play style on their roster already but i'm 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 clinging on for dear life 
Yeah. And the last guy we should talk about is Jackson Hayes. Uh, really turned into a guy that like plays his role well could be a great fit with Zion Williamson if what we saw last year with some of some of the flashes uh is real like for instance like he took one three a game and made it at 35 percent obviously that's a thing that opposing teams were ecstatic to see was him taking threes like they left him wide open a lot of the time but if he can make that open three it changes things because he is very athletic. He started a lot of games for them last year in two big lineups because his ability to guard fours and protect the rim on the weak side and provide some rebounding ability uh, just with his athleticism, like he can just crash kind of everywhere and make things happen. He, he he's definitely an NBA player. I was worried about him not being an NBA player uh, after his second year. He's definitely an NBA player. He might be a legit starting caliber NBA player in a couple of years if things break right. Yeah, really athletic, really, really good guarding both the four and the five, which gives New Orleans just lineup versatility. Like if synergy yeah. is the word for the Memphis Grizzlies earlier, lineup versatility has to be it for New Orleans yeah. in terms of how they're building their roster. Just so many funky pieces that they can interchange and, and plug together and still be effective on both ends of the floor. Yeah. Uh, the last team in this little contender core before we move on, this will be a little bit shorter of one is the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, they're now just full on competing, right? Uh, they are a team trying to make the playoffs, win playoff series because they have uh, Carl Towns, Rudy Gobert, and of course, Kermit Wiltz himself, Anthony Edwards. Uh, uh, Anthony Edwards is a guy we have to talk about. He is one of the most fun players in the NBA, one of the highest upside players in the NBA could turn into a top five player in the league at some point. Like there are a few guys that I think you can genuinely say that about. I don't think I would project that for Anthony Edwards because Giannis, Jokic, Luka Doncic, like all, all these guys are so great, right? Like all these guys are unbelievable and it's almost impossible to reach that threshold of being that good in the NBA. If Anthony Edwards development over the next two years goes right, he's one of the guys that could get there. And we started to see it last year in the playoffs that he wants the moment and he wants to be that dude that kills you. And he almost killed Memphis last year. And I I am so fascinated to see where the Anthony Edwards experience goes because he he is, he is something special for sure. A one from day one, as he would say, and like every natural tool that he has and brings to the table, he's learning how to tap into it a lot more consistently. A lot of the complaints about him coming out of college were for as unbelievable as an athlete as he is, he is a little bit too jumper heavy that he, instead of using the athleticism to open up those step backs and the self-creation jumpers, he flips that on its head. He uses the, you know, the jump shot way too much and doesn't get to the rim enough. And I think that we're starting to see a lot more balance come with his game. He's a lot smarter on the defensive end than he played at Georgia, which quite frankly was a dumpster fire when he was there on the defensive end of the floor. Like having Rudy Gobert behind him is going to help him immensely. Having Chris Finch, who is an offensive genius, uh, calling a lot of plays there, helps him on the offensive end of the floor. I think the Timberwolves are a really, really fun team. 
I wonder if we see him end up like in the top five in steals per game this year, knowing that he has that backing of Rudy Gobert to just gamble a little bit more and try and create transition opportunities. Um, I I wouldn't be surprised to see that he's a really good on, uh, but he's, he's a good on ball defender. I wouldn't say he's like really good or awesome at this point, but like he's effective on the ball off the ball. I think that he does have that tendency to like kind of get caught in between where he's like gambling and not really gambling and maybe not like wildly attentive all the time. I wonder if having Rudy back there, he just goes full tilt like toward gambling a little bit more and creates those transition opportunities, shoots passing lanes, does a little bit more that way. I mean, Anthony Edwards last year in that six game playoff series against Memphis averaged 25 points on 46% from the field, 40% from three, 82% from the line. He was fucking 20 years old doing that. He was 20 and big years old. And killer shots. Like, it's like, look, you don't want to read too much into, like, the fact that, you know, he was in a movie this summer and, like, honestly, like, stole the movie in every single scene that he was on screen. Uh, He's just that guy. Like, he, there are so few people that are that comfortable with themselves. And are that comfortable like on screen or that comfortable like in that moment. And it's just, it was it's so funny to see him like be that comfortable being the villain in a movie, right? He's 20 years old. And like, think about like how old like the actors are that you see play teenagers in movies oh, yeah. typically. Like they're 24, 25 a lot of the time because like they have more life experience. They've gone through it. Like, it's not all the time, but like a lot of the time, actors are a little bit older. Yeah, they were 20 years old playing like a 20 year old and was so at home and so at ease. Like, that guy should be in movies and that guy should be leading the Timberwolves in the middle of the playoffs. Like, I, he is someone that I genuinely believe like can kind of do anything at this point. Yeah. Yeah. He's him. He's, uh, he's definitely, he's him. Yeah. Uh, just a couple other guys on this roster. Jaden McDaniels looks like a really fun piece. Uh, you know, uh, the offense is going to have to come along. The shooting is going to have to come along and be a little bit more effective, but he has some ability to handle the ball and create a shot. He's going to have to make plays as a passer a little bit more. Uh, but defensively, he's incredibly impactful. The combination of him and Rudy Gobert will hopefully allow Carl Towns to be mitigated a little bit on the defensive end uh, playing in between those two because they're very different. Rudy's obviously the best rim protector in the NBA and uh, McDaniel's just like this six foot 10 guy with long arms who flies around and has real quickness and um, you know, can guard two through four, right? Just a very impactful player, impactful off the ball as well. Um, yeah, really good player, really good starting quality player that's going to make nine figures in his NBA career, I think. Yep, yeah, I, I like McDaniels there. I mean, intrigued by some of the guys that they brought in this year. Like I know, uh, you know, shout out Matt Penny the, with the Josh Minot guy, uh, who everyone seems to be h- much higher on now after summer league performances. Like, it, you know, Minnesota's got some interesting pieces. I think for me, it, it's all going to come down to, you know, can Anthony Edwards turn into that number one option on the offensive end of the floor? 
And then what type yeah. of role players, skill players, do they need the next two, three, four years around him, Towns, and Gobert to really make this thing sing? Because, totally. you know, as good as McDaniels is, I worry a little bit on the offensive end of the floor about how he and Gobert look you know, playing on the same, uh, same floor as each other. I think there's enough shooting and floor spacing. They're going to be okay. But it might be one of those things just to keep in the back of your mind of is there somebody else that might be a better fit here? Like for all of the postseason issues the Utah Jazz had over the last several years, they had a winning formula of, you know what, get shooters and really good offensive players and have Rudy Gobert back there to clean things up. Uh, yeah. You wonder what it could look like weaponized on the defensive end with somebody like McDaniels, who you know is a, a really good wing defender. But you also know that the formula works, and if you can just go back to it with some better players, with you know a couple other guys that might be more polished on both ends of the floor, as opposed to Utah, which is really heavily on uh, on the offensive end and not as much on D in spots one through four. You know, the, the Timberwolves have different directions that they can go here. Yeah, totally. Uh, the Wendell Moore pick was interesting. He, yeah. you know, hopefully as long as he shoots uh, is a great fit within this core. But, you know, another guy potentially that may have some shooting questions. I know he hit a high percentage last year, but was not a volume shooter. And I think a lot of times teams were a little bit more comfortable to leave him open off the catch than to close out on him hard, right? Like they were trying to stop him from getting to the rim, stop him from getting to the paint, being able to make dribble pass plays, uh, being able to finish at the rim with his length. I think that, you know, how he develops as a shooter, and he could become a good shooter in time, but how he develops as a shooter is going to be very critical for his play uh, in the NBA. Um, I'm also like still a Jalen Noel guy. I think he's going to be an impactful uh, scorer. On some level, Naz Reed has been like a solid, okay backup center at this point. We'll see, man. This this is a fun it's a fun group at the very least, and one of the most intriguing teams to watch in the NBA next year because of the Gobert Towns experiment that they've decided to undertake. Uh, okay, let's take a commercial break, and then we're going to get into the rebuilding teams because, of course, the Western Conference has uh, a, a loaded group of fun rebuilding teams. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So... When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys 
There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot-blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. And we're going to talk about the rebuilding teams in the Western Conference. Do you want to start with the sadness that is Oklahoma City? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess we have bummer. to, right? Yeah. It's a bummer. It sucks. Chet Holmgren, we talked about it on the last episode with Alex Schiffer, but uh, Chet Holmgren is going to miss the rest of the year, uh, or the entirety of this year, I guess, with a Liz Frank injury in his right foot. Uh, these injuries do from all, you know, research from folks like Jeff Stotts and people that are way smarter than me in terms of knowing what, uh, you know, the injury history and the results of past people that have had these injuries uh, indicates, uh, you know, most of the time people heal from the Liz Frank injury. It just takes a while to heal because the bone is in the middle of the foot and it doesn't get great blood flow. And it just takes a little bit more time to get there. Uh, it's an incredible bummer. It's an incredible accident uh, that this happened. Yeah. I don't think this look, I don't think this indicates anything long-term about Chet. Um, anyone, you know, I, I mentioned this on the last podcast, but anyone that's saying that like a GM was afraid to draft Chet because he is uh, someone that might get injured while playing in a pro-am on a not-great court where the game had to get called midway through it because of court conditions. Um, it's just silly at the end of the day, right? Yeah, I mean, so, it's, a, it's an injury that has nothing to do with his frame either, right? Like there's yeah. this, if anything, the fact that he doesn't have a ton of weight, mass, whatever you want to call it, it, it makes it easier on your feet. So I just, I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm so out on trying to, to make this about Chet and his frame. And, and then I told you so type of moment, completely random injuries happen, pro-ams overseas with, with guys that are playing right now, like Gallinari got hurt this weekend. It, it happens. Just pump the brakes, move on. It sucks for Oklahoma city in year one, but yeah, it might put them in better position for a 2023 draft pick. I don't want, I don't love thinking that way, but I mean, we saw enough flashes from Chet to know that he's going to be special and to know that, look, there have been so many guys that have missed their rookie season and come in and been dominant NBA players before. He's going yep. to be fine, folks. Yep. 
Blake Griffin, Joel Embiid. We've seen guys drafted at the top of the draft that have come in and just absolutely dominated. Uh, I'm excited to see Chet in year two, which will be his year one. I think that it's going to be a really exciting experience. Uh, talking about this Oklahoma City team, though, they have a lot of really fun young guys. Shea Gilgis-Alexander uh, is a, a, a guy that uh, certainly exists, although at this point he kind of doesn't count within the idea of what we're talking about. I have like a fly buzzing around my head right now as I try and like knock it out of the way. Uh, Shay doesn't really count in this, but it feels like he does because he hasn't really been a part of, um, you know, a winning team in Oklahoma city since his second year there. Uh, but it, it's interesting. Like everyone talks about the fact that like, Oh, we have no idea how good Shay is. Cause he hasn't played in a winning situation. I mean, here's the thing. Like Shay has played, in 13 playoff games already he's played in two playoff runs um you know both very competitive series like with the clippers the first year and then uh with oklahoma city in that second year he was very good in the playoffs in both those series too by the way averaged 14 points as a rookie in that first year and then in the second year averaged 16 points um playing next to chris paul like I'm not worried about Shea at all in the playoffs. I think he is going to be a top 20, 25 player in the NBA at some point. I don't think he's quite there yet, but, um, you know, has a chance to make an all-star team if he takes a leap this year, uh, but has that kind of ceiling. I'm excited for the Shea experience, even if, you know, doesn't quite count within the idea of what we're talking about here. Yeah, but we have to bring it up because he is their best player and the the guy that they're going to predominantly build around in a lot of different ways. So every draft selection that they have really needs to be made of a how does it necessarily fit with with Shaq? Uh, You know, I I don't put too much stock into the experience thing because that really is something you only hear the first time you're a playoff team. Once you get over that hump, you make it. Then all of a sudden, no one's really rattling about that anymore. So uh, yeah. I'm not I'm not too too worried uh, about you know listening to any of that or, or how much damage may or may not be done from the Thunder prolonging a tank for you know three four years, however long it takes for them to get good. Get yeah. good players. You can surround them with veterans who have been there. They're going to be fine because talent at the end of the day is what wins out, especially talent who's all hitting their stride at the same time. And if there's one thing that the Thunder are really banking on with their you know, 8,000 draft picks between now and 2030, it's that they're going to have enough assets to be able to reload to get whatever they need down the line, whether that's a veteran to help them or more younger guys or win-now pieces that fit the timeline and the trajectory of the course. So if you're Sam Presti, just keep going after – talent after talent after talent and try to build an identity. And I know we talked about this on one of our podcasts, you know, earlier this summer, the identity in Oklahoma city is built around length and guys who are really toolsy, but have good wingspans and and plus size for their position. Josh Giddy, Chet Holmgren, even a guy like Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara, like just length guys who can handle a little bit and, yeah, it's it's like size. intersection of length, size, and skill. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's they, they used to just draft like long, athletic guys, and like those guys became good defenders. Andre Robertson, Josh Eustis. You know, they drafted Perry Jones. Like yeah. it used to be more on the length, athleticism spectrum, but I think now it's like skill intersection with length and athletic, like length and 
size almost like not even as much athleticism not to say that like Jalen Williams is a bad athlete or anything but like you know it's it feels like it's more that like Josh Giddy has incredible positional size and skill level Shea Gilgis Alexander has incredible positional size is like a six foot six with a seven foot wingspan like combo guard right so it's I think it's like intersection of skill and size and length as much as anything. And Giddy is like the prime example, I think on like where to start, right? Like what Josh Giddy showed uh, throughout the course of his rookie season is that look, I, I don't know if I'm willing to call like a teenager. I think he might've just turned 20, one of the, you know, smartest 10 smartest players in the NBA, but he's going to be that he, he might have like, you know, just he's a supercomputer in terms of yeah. the way that he thinks through and processes basketball. And it's those are the kind of guys you want, I think, like just genius level basketball players that have great positional size. Yeah. yeah. And the the size is the big deal to me, because whenever you're a talented passer and Josh has that with both hands, with great pace, great feel, but his ability to throw passes over the top of defenders and not be bothered by lengthy guys that might be on him. That's what's going to enable this Oklahoma City team to really thrive. If you play him at the one, he's got a huge size advantage. If you want him and Shea to be backcourt partners long-term, you need to be you know, willing to or at least understand that Giddy's going to be guarded by some bigger guys and wings. That doesn't inhibit his vision, his ability to be an effective playmaker. I think that a lot of point guards that we've seen over the last 15 years – if they're a little smaller, you can stick a longer, really good wing defender on them, and it can give them some problems. That doesn't seem to be the case with Giddy because his game is based on skill and vision and just this funky pace that he plays with as opposed to quickness, as opposed to, hey, I can just get around anybody. Like it, it Really, really like his game. It's about the fit with SGA long-term, and can you surround those guys with spacing? Yeah, and can Josh learn to shoot? Like Josh can't right. be a twenty six percent three point shooter or whatever. No. Just can't be. Like he he needs to be at least a somewhat threatening three point shooter uh, at some point, and that's the next you know frontier of his game, right? Where he's going to have to make the jump. We'll see if he does it. I, I don't know if he will or not, but if he does, he has real all star. Like if he becomes like an actual shooter, he has all star upside. Yep. If he becomes you know, less than that, but just like a reasonable spot shooter, he'll be a starter in the NBA for a very long time. That'll be incredibly in fact, uh, effective uh, in terms of being able to play real playoff minutes. Uh, the draft this year was interesting for them because obviously they draft the two Jalen Williams is they draft Usman Jang. I, I like Jalen Williams uh, from Santa Clara. I think that's a really good pick for them. You know, Usman's interesting to me uh, in terms of his length. I think he's probably a little bit more of a project than Jalen Williams from Santa Clara. Um, But, you know, again, that intersection of size, skill and length and everything, he kind of fits that. And what what did you think of their draft this year? You know, I thought it was effective for the – the areas that we just mentioned, I love Chet and I really like Santa Clara, Jalen Williams. I thought those were two fantastic fits for what they're looking for. When I look at Usman, I think of, you know, when you have this many draft picks and you're Sam Presti, 
swing for the fences on a few of them. Now, trading whatever it ended up being three first rounders to try to move up to get Usman, maybe a little bit rich for my taste. But at the end of the day, when you've got you know a swing on Poku, a swing on Usman Jang, like those are the things you should be doing if you're Oklahoma City, because if you do that one more time, and just one of those three players hits to be a really high end rotation player or starter on a on a playoff team then it's worth all the investment time that they've poured in. So I, I get it, even though I'm not in love with the player, I certainly understand the type of swing that they're making. Right, right. Um, and then last year, they end up with Jeremiah Robinson Earl and oh. Trey Mann. And I love Jeremiah Robinson Earl. Yeah. Uh, fantastic player. And I didn't love Trey Mann pre-draft. I actually had a better grade on Jeremiah Robinson Earl. Yep. But... I'll say there there were some sneaky fun flashes from Trey Mann last year. Like he had some moments where it was like, oh yeah, like I was worried that he would have no chance at defending. And I think that the Thunder early in the season felt like he had no chance to defend, which is why he didn't play much. Um, but it kind of got better by the end of the year and the shooting flashes, like the weird pace that he plays at in the pull-up shooting like all that is pretty real look if he can even be a sixth man that's probably a win at number 17 or number 19 wherever they took him and i don't know man like i'm i'm tentatively in on what we saw from trey Mann late in the year like i thought it was pretty good yep yeah totally agree there i think when you're looking at evaluating guys like man like giddy like any of these number of young guys it's going to be really difficult on the defensive end when Oklahoma City doesn't have a ton of rib protection. I think we saw that catch up to them last year. Uh, I worry that with Chet being out, it's just it's harder to know who a really effective defender is going to be in the type of scheme that they want to play when you're missing a guy like Chet Holmgren. So while the injury that he suffered is really devastating for him in his rookie season, it just challenges the evaluation process of a lot of these younger guys. Uh, I love Jeremiah Robinson Earl. I think he was a fantastic get. And some of the most underrated parts of building a roster is just going out there and getting really solid, dependable basketball players. I think JRE certainly is that, but he doesn't provide the type of rim protection. He's a small ball five, if that's where he's going to be playing. And, and it's, it's a very different type of defensive scheme and scover, uh, coverage and just mentality that you have when you're on the floor and, you know, Chet Holmgren's behind you as opposed to, to Jeremiah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, we have to talk about the last guy here. It is someone that is near and dear to my heart. Pokuism is one of the core tenets of the game theory podcast. It states that, there is between a zero and 100% chance that Alexei Pokashevsky is going to be an effective NBA player. Uh, I enjoy watching Poku. He is inexperienced. Definitely. It's clear that there's talent there somewhere, how effectively it all wraps together in a package that makes a reasonably like impactful NBA player. I don't know, but uh, where are you at on Poku? This is an important. This is an important moment in your game theory. Uh, your your game theory uh, career here. Yeah, I 
I love the experience. I love watching. <laughs> I, I, I call him a shot, no chaser type of player because that's kind of the mood that I have to be in to really that's dive amazing. in and, and enjoy watching him sometimes. Yeah. But like it's from a developmental standpoint, it's really hard with these well-rounded toolsy guys to know which one of their skills is going to pop most in the NBA, what develops yeah. to be his signature. And that was always a thing for me when evaluating Poku pre-draft is I saw these flashes of, of handling, of length, of shooting on the move, pick and pop, creating his own shot, all of these different things that he does okay. What is he going to do really well enough to become a signature guy? And yeah. I, I, I thought his role – in the NBA is always going to be challenged by what develops first. And it, we're two years into this experience and I still don't really know what the answer to that is. So uh, loving the experience. glad I bought a ticket to the ride. Don't want to get off yet, but I don't know what the hell it is that we're doing. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, I, I love, I love the player. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. He's a fun player. Uh, he is look like he's seven foot tall and he can dribble and like his lower half is not that weak. Like he has like, it looks like put on weight through his lower half, which could help him become more functional in the way that his game works. He has no idea where he should be defensively. Um, he makes wild plays offensively that like off the dribble where like, you're like, Oh, this is a seven footer pulling up and wait, this isn't normal. This is cool. Uh, but then he shoots like 30% from three half the time and, uh, he can pass, but then he throws like some of the wildest fucking things you'll see on planet earth. He's like not good at NBA basketball right now. Uh, there is a world where by the time he's 24 years old, he is very effective. Uh, if the shot comes along and the decision making like slows down a little bit, I, I would continue going down this road for sure. Because what else is the Thunder doing right now? Like, why not? The, the thing that, uh, you know, th- there's nothing good that comes out of the Chet Holmgren injury, but it does open up minutes for Alexei. And I'm fascinated to see where that goes. Yeah, I think anytime you know you're an organization, you've got to resist the urge to just get a, a new fancier toy and and dive into that only. That you know they've spent the last three years accumulating intriguing young players. There's yeah. only so many minutes to go around. You've got to find ways to figure out if the long term development for these guys is really going to pay off. And in order to do that, you got to be able to give them minutes consistently. So that's, that's the one thing here, whether it's this year or next year that, you know, the thunder are going to have so many young players on their roster. It's, it's really hard to separate amongst each other when you're all fighting for game reps. Like I think back to a guy like Teo Maladon, who I was pretty high on. He's had a a roller coaster of a career thus far. And it's not just due to his own production, but because you see a guy like Trey Mann come in and be really successful right away. You draft Josh Giddy. You know, Shea Gilgis-Alexander is a, an all-star type of player with the ball in his hands. What does Maladon do to augment that group? How do you develop him in any of those different ways? Just feels like he's been leapfrogged. I think there's still value there. I, I buy into Maladon in the right system and circumstances. But yeah. again, it's, it's kind of the danger of accumulating so many good young players at the same time, which is somebody might end up being a miss just because – 
there's not enough time to hit on everybody. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Okay, let's go to Houston because Houston is the next weird team here. Uh, Jalen Green and Jabari Smith, I think, are the two main guys, but obviously Alperin Shangun, and then they have Kevin Porter, who still qualifies here. They have, you know, Tari Eason and Usman Garuba and Ty Ty Washington, and then they have Josh Christopher and Dacian Nix and KJ Martin. Like, Another team where they probably can't develop all these guys. Yep. I mean, it seems like KJ Martin requested a trade from reports this summer because uh, he kind of sees the writing on the wall that they can't develop all of these guys. It's a fascinating group. I don't like from a talent perspective. I, I, I like I like Jalen Green a lot. I like Jabari Smith a lot. Um, Shangun is fascinating. I like the combo of Jabari Smith and Shangun. Um, Tari Eason is very is very like physically imposing and long and has some skill. Uh, I like Ty Ty Washington as a player. I, I'm. I, it's a weird. It's a weird mix. It's a weird mix of players. Yeah, it's it's funny when I look at them in groups of twos, I can find ways that they really fit well together, right? Like I think Porter and Jalen Green are a dynamic backcourt because both can handle and create their own shot and and have a lot of confidence. I think Ty Ty Washington fits in well with either of those two guys. I don't know if I love a long-term roster built on all three of them in the backcourt. You know, I yeah. look at Jabari and Shengun, like you said, that makes a little bit of sense. Jabari, a really imposing defender who wants to defend and is versatile on the perimeter, helps alleviate some of the, the rim drives that would put Shengun in trouble as a rim protector. Love those two guys together. But when you throw you know, Jalen Green, Shengun, and Jabari in a core, it's one guy who I think creates his own shot, and that's Jalen. I don't see that necessarily for, for Jabari long term. You know, it's a lot of touches for Shen Goon at the high post where he's great. Okay, Jabari can space the floor. What are we doing with the rest of the guys, the guards that are so good with the ball in their hands? How do they fit in a more cutting-based system if Shen Goon ends up really emerging and becoming the guy? Like the idealized version of every single one of these stars or, or, you know, three guys that they've – I should say four guys with Porter in there that they've really – accumulated invested in years yeah Yeah. invested in if two or three of those guys really hit one of them seems like from a fit perspective they have to be the odd man out and that's that's what's really head scratching about how this team's put together to me well in it's like the difference between them and memphis memphis continues to draft guys that have a real floor that makes sense uh because they can play with one another and I don't mean to say that like the Houston guys are selfish in any way, but like Memphis, it seems like has really prioritized these guys that are unselfish, right? Like particularly uh, unselfish in the way that they go about their business. Um, Houston, it's a lot of guys that need the ball in their hand on yeah. some level, right? Like Ty Ty needs the ball in his hand to be effective. Uh, Kevin Porter needs the ball in his hand to be effective because he's not an impactful shooter. I know what like the spot up numbers say, like he did make his catch and shoot jumpers at a very high level last year. I would like to see that uh, back itself up again this year is what I would say. Uh, Cause either teams will close out on him harder and he will 
be effective or not effective, or he'll be effective again because teams aren't closing out on him. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of his shooting yet. It, it's in like a lot of his jumpers don't come off the catch at this point because he has the ball in his hands a lot and really likes to have the ball in his hands a lot. Um, that that's, that's kind of what he enjoys. That's how he enjoys playing. Right. And then Jalen green likes to have the ball in his hands a lot. And you know, how much space does that give Jabari Smith to continue to develop with the ball in his hands? Because while we talk about the fact that Jabari Smith isn't like the best ball handler right now for him to reach his ceiling, he does need the reps as a ball handler to like work through that and continue to make waves. And like part of that's going to be improving the off season, right? Like this year, next year, it's going to be a process that involves more than just game reps, but like he needs them also. So, and like Tari Eason is a guy that definitely like is most effective with the ball in his hands right now. Um, it's interesting. Uh, they have a lot of really talented pieces and mm-hmm. like, this is not even including Shengun yet, who, by the way, like really impactful is like a pick and short roll guy or like pick mm-hmm. and pop guy who like puts the ball on the deck and then makes a passing read, right? Like a very talented group of players with the ball in their hands. And you can make a case that in today's NBA, having guys that are threatening with the ball in their hands uh, and can shoot. Cause in the, a lot of cases, these guys can shoot like Jalen green, Ty Ty Washington. I trust as a shooter. Yeah. Um, you know, Jabari Smith, obviously a really good shooter. I think Shangun has a chance to shoot. I think Kevin Porter, like based off of what we saw last year when he didn't have the, when he was spotting up and shooting, it's impossible to say that he doesn't at least have a ceiling as a shooter if it goes right. Right. So, there is a world where this could all really work out. I, I I just, I I don't know. Like I'm a little bit And part of this is they're so early in their development that I think they should just be trying to find the guy at the end of the day Mm -hmm. and finding Jalen green and making sure he's the guy. And then once Jalen green established himself, like an averages, hopefully like 23 points a game this year, then you build around Jalen Green with players that make sense. I like the idea of Ty Ty Washington next to him, for instance. Yeah. I yeah. think I like the idea of Tari Eason and Jabari Smith next to him. Um, what they do at the center position long term is interesting because I did not love Shangun's defense last year. Um, I know that Matt Moore did a Twitter thing saying that, like, statistically, Shangun's defense was good that's using like synergy numbers and I don't think synergy numbers are, I love synergy. Shout out Matt Curley. Shout out everyone over there. You guys are a great team. I don't love using individual synergy numbers. Mm -hmm. And while he is good at deflections and things, um, he's a very reactive player. I think that his lack of foot speed and his, uh, decision sometimes to gamble a little bit to get those deflections and his lack of awareness rotationally is not very good. And yeah. he was not a good, def- I, like, I, I don't know how you can watch his tape and come away saying he was a good defender last year. Um, maybe he can get there. He's a genius, like IQ guy that like, he sees the game incredibly well. And I think that those guys that are super, super smart, maybe tend to be able to figure out at some point, and get to a level where that's passable defensively. That's why I'd absolutely like continue to invest real minutes in him. And I think that 
Steven Silas did not invest enough real minutes in him, especially early in the season last year. Uh, I think that maybe he would have been a little bit better by the end of the year if he got some of the minutes earlier in the year. But he's a question mark to me, I guess, is what I would say right now, more than like a guaranteed tried and true building block. Like I, I'm I'm just as interested in him as I am in Tari Eason at this point, I guess, is like the way I would put it. And Tari has his own questions. So it, it's a fascinating core that I there are so many questions with this core, I guess. Is yeah. The yeah. And, and I think on the defensive end of the floor, like to me, their three best individual defenders are Jabari Smith, Tari Eason and Usman Garuba. And yeah, I have a we really, talked about Usman. Yeah. 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 And like, I have a really hard time envisioning how two of those guys really share the floor and effective minutes on the offensive end of the floor. Like you might be able to get away with it with Tari and Jabari at the three and the four, but it's just, it's a team that has a lot of guys that need the ball in their hands, like you said, and the defensive personnel that they have overlaps so much that it's, I feel like they're going to be starving for defensive production at some point. Yeah. And like on some level, it's weird. Like the centers that they have taken, like I consider Shangun a center. Yeah. Um, Really, frankly, I consider Garuba like a center because offensively, that's what he is. Um, I think they're fascinating in their own ways. Garuba is a very, has a chance to be a very impactful defender, but he needs to get to the point where he can play minutes offensively. Um, I still like, I loved Garuba pre draft and uh, he was hurt, right? Like, we, we probably shouldn't hold that against him, right? Um, I, I don't know. I like the idea of Garuba and Shangun is interesting to me, but then like, that's not Jabari Smith, uh, right? who needs to play. It's a weird, but like, they're so young in their infancy as a group that like, do you care about the way all of this fits? Like they're not winning games yet at this point. And they're not going to win games this year. So like, does it matter the way that they fit? I don't know. Like they've drafted a lot of talented players. I like the fact that they've drafted a lot of talented players and I like all of these guys singularly. And I like, like you said, I like some of them like in conjunction with one another and maybe that's all that matters at this point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a good problem to have, right? You'd rather have talent and have to figure out how to make it work than be trotting out lineups that you feel can't really win you basketball games. Yeah. Yeah. And like this team probably isn't going to win basketball games, right? Like, I mean, they're not going to be good this year and that's fine. It doesn't, they're so early at this point that they're not like trying to be good yet. I think that the 2023, 24 season is probably the year when they try and make a leap up the Western conference rankings, but it, it's hard. Cause I don't want to like over, I don't want to overstate my concerns. You know what I mean? Like Jalen green's really good. Jalen green's closed the year last year was amazing. He was awesome. Yep. Like he was his last like 35 games of the year was everything that Houston wanted when they drafted him at number two. And he looks like a future 25 point per game score. Like the fact that you have that guy is what matters. The fact that you have Jabari Smith, who I think is going to be an incredibly impactful two-way player, that that's what matters, right? Yeah, 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 no doubt about it. And again, the rest of the pieces, once you figure out who the two or three that you're going to build around, everyone else is not necessarily expendable, but you have an understanding that 
it's all about finding your pillars and then yeah. figuring out what you do around that in order to win basketball games. So it, it, we're still in the identify pillars phase, which means don't have to worry too much about winning games. Just let the kids go out there, kind of roll the ball out, and all of these guys who are best within their hands see who really sticks and ends up developing into something. And those are the guys we build around long term. Yeah, I will say I think that it would really benefit them for Jalen Green to average like 23 points per game this year yeah. and for them to like, no. And, and frankly, like, I think he is going to do that. Like, I think mm-hmm. he's going to be a monster this year. I, like from what we saw late in the year last year, I think he's going to be an absolute stud this year. And I think he is going to achieve this. But if he averages 15, 17 points a game again, right? Like something like that this year it becomes like you're spinning your wheels a little bit and that can be a tough place to be organizationally because rookie contracts are four years, but those four years catch up to you in a hurry uh, a little bit quicker than what you think. Um, So I I would really hope that Jalen green does what I think he's going to do an average 20 to 23 points per game and does it like on, 44% 44% from the field and 37, 38% from three and 80 plus from the line. Yeah. And as long as he does that, I, I think that Houston is right along their trajectory um, at this point. Yep. Totally agree. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the San Antonio Spurs, which is a newly rebuilding team. Uh, obviously they have guys like Josh Primo and Devin Vassell. Keldon Johnson still counts in this conversation. And I think Keldon Johnson's one of those guys that's like, just gone completely ignored by the national media, despite the fact that he is really, really good. It's really good. Like re- really good. Yeah. Um, like averaged as a 21 year old last season uh, or 22, I guess he was, but he averaged 17.6 rebounds uh, while shooting 40% from three on five, three point attempts per game. He's really good. <laughs> like being that young, being able to do that, like the Spurs should think he is a 20 point per game scorer long-term, I think at this point. Um, That's why they signed him to that extension, right? Like that's a extension that I think makes total sense for them to give him. uh, What is it? It's like, I think it's a descending like $77 million a year or something like that. Yeah. yeah, It's an awesome contract. And uh, this year, they go out and they bring in three first round picks, Jeremy Sohan, who I love. Uh, and then Malachi Branham and Blake Wesley, who I had in the twenties, which is where they drafted them. And I think they drafted them like in completely appropriate spots. Yeah. And this team is a team that's had good track record developing players. And these are guys that have high upside, certainly in Branham and Wesley. Neither of them, I think, are particular. Wesley's okay defensively. Wesley was good on ball this year defensively. Yeah. Uh, Malachi Branham is not very good defensively no. at this point. Um, interesting core. It, again, like it's a it's a young group of guys that are going to figure it out together, I guess. Yeah, it, it's they're a step farther back than everybody else that we've talked about thus far because they're still searching for who's going to be that pillar and that guy. I think there are high yeah. hopes that it t- ends up being Josh Primo. I think there's really high hopes that Kelvin Johnson can carry, like you said, a higher scoring load. I don't know if either of those are number one option type of guys that you want to have on a playoff caliber team. 
maybe they grow into that. Maybe this is the year where San Antonio just has to invest in saying, you know what, we're going to ride or die by these two guys and see what they give us. I love Devin Vassell. I think there's untapped potential for him that he's started to to tap into as being a guy who creates his own shot. But again, not a number one option type of guy. If, if I'm being honest with you, that's just not where I see him. So uh, there's, the three rookies that you never know what to expect from a rookie coming in and they're never going to be really efficient, but with the defensive concerns of a guy like Branham or just the inconsistencies at times of a guy like Blake Wesley, how much are you going to look at this season, you know, a year from now and say, okay, this is the role that guy's going to be able to play long-term. We really know what we're getting with Blake Wesley with Malachi Branham, man, he's just, this is the type of player we know we can build around now. I I don't know if a year is going to be enough to really do that for San Antonio. So this is a very, very early way of me saying, I like a lot of the individual pieces. I think they're still missing their top dog. Yeah. This is a, pure developmental year for San Antonio at this point. Now that they've moved to Jante Murray, they have all of these picks. Um, This is like absolutely a developmental year in every way. And we'll see what these guys look like, right? Like Jakob Pertl is an interesting player that like could be a part of the core, could be moved, right? Um, You know, uh, they have a bunch of other guys, right? Like Doug McDermott, Zach Collins, like interesting players, but like could be moved, could not be there in a year or two right um i i just i I don't know this is it's a it's a weird group it's a very weird group uh of players that like the spurs they have a chance to be the worst team in the nba this year right they definitely do and and it's not because they don't have talent it's because all of the talent that they have is so so young yeah yeah like i like Keldon johnson but Kelton Johnson like might be their highest scorer this year. And like Devin Vassell, I I like Devin, but like he might be a year away from being like a winning player in the NBA. And I don't know what they're going to do at lead guard. Do you like, are they just going to like give the ball to Josh Primo? I I would think, I mean, what, what is it? Trey Jones, the other Trey Jones, maybe like, yeah, Yeah. like I I like Trey, like, Mm -hmm let's do this. But I, I had a top, I think I had a top 20 grade on Trey. Like I actually really yeah. like Trey, but yeah, me too. Um, I haven't like, he, he was effective when he played last year. Like he averaged six, uh, six points, three assists in 16 minutes a game while shooting 49% from the field. But like, he can't shoot yet. So, and, and even if Trey Jones ends up being a guy that you know surprises us and, and has a really, really good year, what does that mean long term for him and Primo? Is that a guy that you know, are those two guys you can play alongside each other for really long minutes? It's just it, there's a lot of fascinating maybe. things the Spurs have to figure out. Honestly, like I, I might like that fit because Trey can yeah. really defend at the point of attack and Primo can do some stuff. And then they have Blake, obviously, like Blake Wesley played point last year at Notre Dame. Maybe you just kind of give the ball to him. I, but this has a chance to be the worst team in the NBA this year, I think. And like, yeah. I don't feel like many people are talking about it. I saw that um, Robbie Callen tweeted out earlier the over under win totals. Uh, for this year and god am i excited to do that show with robbie this year um but i'm like trying to find i think it was jeff sherman that showed them um 
where where are they? We've got that's NHL points. It's NBA regular season win. San Antonio's over under is twenty two and a half. They actually are the lowest team right now in terms of over under win total. So I'm taking the under Vegas too, agrees then. with me. Yeah, yeah, I think I am too. Honestly, yeah, um, yeah this is not going to be a very good team this year. Um, and that's fine. It's all about developing these young guys and they have Malachi Branham and Blake Wesley. And I, I will say, I love Jeremy Sohan. I love yeah, him. I think he's going to be awesome. He's a great defender, uh, potential offensively. Cause he's so long and can dribble a little bit and knows how to play needs to shoot it. They have a lot of guys that need to shoot it. Like, uh, if you listen to people pre-draft, uh, that saw Malachi Branham, even he had some problems shooting at pre-draft. Although I think that, you know, he was a 40% shooter at Ohio state last year. I think we should probably assume he's going to shoot. Um, but Trey Jones, like not a great shooter yet. Devin Vassell is not a high volume shooter right. yet. Um, Kelton Johnson is a shooter at this point. I think we've established that, but I, I don't know. This is a weird team. It's it is a and weird, it get- weird team. Well- well, it gets even weirder when, you know, the, the one last guy I wanted to bring up here is a Romeo Langford, you know, somebody that they, they got yeah. coming from Boston. Like that's just, that's another experiment, another non-shooting right now, like more of a slashy type of athletic wing that fits in with a lot of the pieces that they have. It's just a ton of overlap at those spots. No primary guy that really sticks out to me yet and uh, and no major shooting. So I'm, I'm hoping for the sake of our dear friend, Matt Penny, that Josh Primo averages like 30 a game this year and is just the best player on this team, bar none. But Would like, love it, it. Would love it. I just I, I can't have too high of expectations for him simply because he is so young and we haven't seen a ton of what he can do with the ball in his hands at the NBA level. The last guy I want to point out is Don Barlow, who's on a two-way for them. Uh, I'm fascinated by that project, too. He's like six foot ten, incredibly big hands, incredibly long arms, really took a leap last year with the Overtime Elite program. And I think he has a chance to be something, but like another project for sure. Um, Yeah, interesting group. Very, very interesting group of players. Uh, Let's move on to the Portland Trailblazers. This is like kind of the last team we wanted to dive into a little bit. Uh, but it's not going to be like a crazy big deep dive because look, it's Shaden Sharp, who we haven't seen in two years, really. Um, it's like guys like Trendon Watford and Greg Brown. And I guess like, I mean, like is Didi still on this roster? And oh, Nasir Little, Nasir Little. Little's interesting. Yeah. Jared Roden's on this roster. My, my favorite, like, I'll be honest. I think their second best prospect is uh jabari walker from colorado that's a guy that like i just ranked too low i had him at like 47 i had a guaranteed contract grade on him but like i i knew it when i watched the tape and then i watched him at summer league and i was like oh this guy's good this guy's really good um just smart cutting off the ball will shoot it he defends like that's one where like i just didn't stick to my guns you know what i mean yeah like I, I knew he was better than Pat Baldwin and I ranked him below Pat Baldwin. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. one of those ones where like you just fuck up, you, you get into the forties and like, I know it. you just yeah. kind of fuck it up every year. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I really like Jabari Walker. I think he's going to be terrific. Yeah. Uh, just a smart player that knows how to play and defends and is an athlete. Like there, it's, it's all there, but I guess the guy is like Shaden and 
I don't think you and I have talked a lot about Shaden, have we? Yeah, I don't really know much to add to a conversation on Shaden just because I haven't seen him very much. Like, what what do I have to go off of other than two years old AAU film where he looked like the re- most athletic guy in the gym? Uh, yeah. it, it's it's hard to really say what he's going to look like. I think the the most important thing, and and to me, this is it fits what the Blazers are doing right now. Just be patient with him. Like there, there needs to be very little expectation for year one for a guy like Shaden Sharp to come in and do anything. If he's playing eight minutes a game in the rotation in the final month or so of the season and the Blazers are still in contention, I think that's a really good thing for the Blazers, not a bad thing. Yeah, and like the Blazers are in a weird position because the West is as deep as it is. And like they theoretically like could they could miss the play in. Like you, you look at, you know, you have teams. So in their own division, they have Denver, Minnesota. They're both ahead of them in the pecking order. I would put the Lakers ahead of them. I would put the Clippers ahead of them. I would put the Warriors and the Suns ahead of them. That's six in the Southwest division, Memphis and New Orleans and Dallas. That's nine teams. I would have. Portland 10th in the pecking order, despite being an enormous Damian Lillard fan. And like if the Kings jumped them because their offense is just awesome, or like if Utah jumped them because they don't trade Donovan Mitchell or something like that. Um, It's a weird team. And I, I don't know where they fit at this point, like uh, it feels like they're just like stuck in the middle for the rest of the time that they have Damian Lillard, unless they just like absolutely nail a draft pick like a shade and sharp or like something that could be forthcoming. And yeah. I, I don't know. Where, where are you on Keon Johnson, Sam? So I didn't love the Tennessee tape. Uh, I liked a lot of what we saw from him coming into Tennessee, but obviously like the quality of competition was not always awesome. Um, super athlete for sure. But I, I just don't, I don't know if he processes the game as quickly as I would like to see from someone like Keon Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like the natural tools that he brings to the table and saw a lot of ways that he can help a team if developed the right way. I, think I mean, getting, he's he's what one of the ten best athletes in the NBA. Yeah. Easy, easy. Yeah, I mean, and and in versatile ways too, not just straight lines or above the rim, like moving his feet in yeah. tight spaces. He guards guys really well. He's long armed. I like the theory of what Keon Johnson can be. I just don't see how how he helps this Blazers team right now. Right. And, and that's, he'd need to be a defensive stopper. Like he'd need to invest all of his energy in being like that guy. Right. Yeah, he would, he would need to, which in that case, like I think that's where, you know, when you have Jabari Walker, maybe that's what he turns into where, okay, is Keon Nasir Little as well. Nasir Little is absolutely that type of guy. So it's an overlap for some of these younger guys. When you're not necessarily a rebuilding team, but you're in the middle of the pack there like Portland is, you want to compete, your margin for error is very, very, very thin in those role player spots, particularly six, seven, eight that you're bringing off the bench. You've got to be able to nail those minutes when Dame is resting. And 
I don't know if the younger guys really do a ton on the offensive end to, to help that, which means there's going to be a lot of competition for who ends up being the defensive guy that gets those minutes. Yeah. 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 That's true. Um, I will say like Keon showed some flashes when he got to Portland last year, like he started 12 games, he averaged 25 minutes a night, average 10 points per game. It's just that he shot like horribly inside the arc. And like, I, I, like he, he had like a 20 point game. He had a 19 point game. He had an 18 point game. Like he, he had a couple of like, Oh, like this is something games. And that's really all Portland. I think could have looked for from him last year. Uh, he needs to improve off the bounce needs to improve the way that he can like functionally score in the mid range and at the rim. Uh, I don't like love his footwork uh, as a below the rim finisher right now, because like not everything is going to be skying above the basket uh, as much as we all love to envision it that way. Um, Just functionally, like he has all of the ability to do this. He just needs to like improve the details, right? Definitely a project worth investing in is what I would say. Um, Like absolutely someone that makes sense for them. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I I like a lot of the younger pieces there from an intrigue standpoint. It's just, this is, you know, Damian Lillard is still here. The rubber has to meet the road now. So who's going to really step up and be able to give them something right away. I think developmental minutes are not really there for the Blazers anymore. And by the way, like the guy that's going to step up and be the defensive stopper this year is Gary Payton. Like, you know, obviously like he's going to be, I would imagine that like he might start for them this Mm -hmm. year. Um, And if not, he'll play 28 minutes off the bench because he'll be the defensive stopper. But like as a guy to learn from, there probably aren't many better guys to learn from in this regard than Gary Payton, just in terms of using your elite athleticism to just bring it every single night. Uh, on that end so yeah no i'm not wildly in on this portland young core but they have a lot of young guys which is interesting Mm -hmm. at the very least um denver we have listed here bones christian brown zeke naji peyton watson ishmael kamagate interesting group Mm -hmm. like yeah fun fun group yeah, I mean, it's it to me. It's Bones. He's the one guy that can really hit out of this group. If he turns, you know, takes another leap, we're talking about this Denver core a little bit differently. I think right now it's just predominantly role players, and that's fine because that's all this team needs. But no more interest from me from a who's going to really hit long term. Like it's Bones. I hope he gets there. If not, they're fine. If he does, that elevates their team a little bit more. Would you take Bones or Peyton Watson or Pey- uh, Bones or Christian Brown right now, if you had to pick one? Bones, yeah, just because I tend to believe that you know, if you see somebody that's had one year of regular season success, I trust that more than anybody who really hasn't. So um, yeah. I'm going to go with Bones. Yeah, I, I think I would take Bones right now. Uh, I do like Christian Brown enough to where it's a legitimate conversation for me. Um, Honestly, like given their depth, it's hard because like the shade and sharp like thing could turn into like a real upside swing. I think I like this young core better than Portland's to be honest. Um, Just because 
Bones is definitely a good NBA player. Uh, I think Christian Brown's going to be a good NBA player. Peyton Watson is a good upside swing on some level. Like, could he could be a guy that's like really something defensively? He has some shot creation, has some passing point forward abilities. Uh, I had a first round grade on Kamigate as well. So mm-hmm. I also really like Kamigate. Um, really smart defender, just knows how to doesn't know how to yet, but has the ability to be an effective defender. He's a good rotational weak side defender. He's still learning like footwork and drop coverage and still learning like a lot of the intricacies, but he's really light on his feet. He moves well. uh, And he's six foot 11 with like a seven foot four, seven foot three and a half wingspan, something like that. So it has a lot of tools. And and I really like uh, the fact that, you know, this is a guy that won the defensive player of the year in France last year and Mm -hmm. was effective despite the fact that he still has a long way to grow positionally uh, defensively. I, I mean, teams wise, I I don't know. Like, I, I don't know that I need to talk about the Clippers here. Um, I guess the jazz would be like semi-interesting if only because they acquired a few of these guys recently, right? Like Taylor Horton Tucker and Leandro Bomaro and Walker Kessler, like, um, you know, all these guys are somewhat interesting, obviously as a bouquet and Nikhil Alexander Walker, I don't think any of these guys are certain NBA players, but, uh, I think Taylor Horton Tucker's upside is fascinating, um, Alexander Walker's a bit of disappointment to me. I thought he was going to be better than he is, but yeah, he just yeah. hasn't quite figured out the moderation of like creating for others and passing compared to just like chucking a lot of the time. It feels like, yeah, uh, that's a bit of a disappointment. The Kings have Keegan Murray as well. Yeah. Like yeah. just Keegan Murray might be awesome. Might be like great mm-hmm. at a certain level. It's just, he's kind of the only guy on the Kings at this point that I'm, wildly interested in that's still on a rookie scale deal uh nimi is fine keon ellis is fine but yeah you know. we like davion too i mean davion more of a known oh yeah. At this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah yeah i'm an idiot yeah davion's yeah. davion's close to the season was actually awesome i keep yeah. forgetting that davion is not like in his fourth year in the nba yeah. for some reason <laughs> yeah. um yeah davion's close to the year last year was awesome mm-hmm. i thought like really really good uh, and I would imagine that, like, it's part of why they traded Tyrese Halliburton. Mm-hmm. You know, I, my thoughts on that are clear. I don't love the idea of that, but like, Davion was so good late last year, both offensively and as like a pesky point of attack defender defensively, that you at least like understood it. Uh, he, in his last 14 games, he averaged 18 points, eight assists, only three turnovers. 46% from the field, 34.5% from three. Those are like borderline starting point guard numbers when you account for the fact that he's a good defender as well. So uh, if he brings that again this year, let's do it. Like, let's let's lock in. This is going to be a fun Kings team. But yeah, Davion and Keegan Murray, again, like th- that duo is better than what the Nuggets and uh, Blazers have for sure. Right. For, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. I, I think the the question for a team like Sacramento is always going to be in the back of my head. Like, what would this have looked like with Halliburton too? And and yeah. that's it's unfair because you know what's done is done. But 
man, do I wish I could have seen Halliburton and Keegan Murray kind of playing alongside each other. I think that'd be a really fun duo. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely right. Um, I'm I'm going to give you 30 seconds to talk about Jaden Hardy and the Dallas Mavericks. <laughs> I know that you want to talk about Jaden Hardy. I always want to talk about Jaden Hardy. Uh, I mean, look, efficiency in summer league don't go hand in hand. So I'm just not too up in arms about what we saw over out there in, in Las Vegas. You know, Dallas is in a different position because they're, they've proven they're ready to compete. They're going in a direction of, of just wanting guys who are going to come in right away and help them play. I think Jaden Hardy might need a year just physically timing wise to figure out how to continue to get to his spots. That's the one thing that I took away from summer league is like, he's still just a quarter of a step slower at getting to where he needs to be. I love the ferocity. I loved how he attacked the basket and, and really is, trying to get to the free throw line a little bit more than what we saw during the last G league ignite season. I hope that continues how scalable his game is. If he gets minutes alongside Luka Doncic right away, I'm not sure because he's going to want to go in there and, and just get him up. And you know what he should, because that's how he plays the game. But if you're Dallas, like those developmental reps are not necessarily there on their NBA roster right now. So lower expectations from Hardy year one as a result. Spins, I, I just want people to know where you had him on your board because, you know, you it was me and Matt doing this before and we yeah. talked about Jaden on the pod before, but I, I do yeah. want to just like, you know, let you, you were very high on Jaden and I want to like be very clear with the people. Six, number six on the board for me. Uh, really, really high because I, I still believe at the end of the day what you draft for are those pillars. And Jaden Hardy has self-creation, three-level scoring upside, good length. And those are the things that I'm really looking for to draft from a, from a pillar is a guy that can turn into a number one option offensively. I think Hardy has the potential to do it. He is farther away, which is one of the reasons why he fell to the second round. But I am willing to buy into that potential. Well, and it's a, uh, even if he's not a number one, he could be like a Jordan Pooley guy yeah right like there there if you can dribble pass and shoot there are ways to get you on the court and be an effective player at the end yeah he's jaden can do that yeah it's not become a number one option or you're out of the league right it's it's not a strikeout thing which is why i felt more comfortable putting him higher on the board because if he doesn't end up being that number one option i still think there's a pathway to being a productive player i just i really value guys that can go out there and score 25 to 30 on any given night. And I think Hardy's that guy. Okay. New segment on the show. (laughs) What did you cook this week? Adam Spinella, because look, Matt and I, we shared movies and TV shows together. And we'll talk about that in a minute with Adam. But the thing that Adam and I share is a love of, in Adam's case, cooking in my case, baking, uh, Adam, what, what did you cook this week? So uh, a couple different things, as I mentioned at the top of the show. This was my last week of real summer break. So I wanted to make sure I spent a ton of time in the kitchen because that's something I enjoy doing over the summers is, is cooking and putting a lot of, lot of time into meals. Uh, two things really stood out to me this week. One, I did like a 12 to 15 hour marinade on a pork tenderloin and some Korean barbecue sauce, tried to 
mash that up with uh, you know some noodles and, and some vegetables and a stir fry we put in there. Turned out pretty well. Uh, would recommend, mm. yeah, would recommend Korean barbecue for anybody that hasn't had it out there. It just goes really well with pork. And then I did make a really good uh, homemade kind of blush sauce, like a, a tomato sauce with uh, with some cream in there and some Parmesan cheese. Let the cherry tomatoes kind of boil down and reduce, put some tomato paste, some herbs in there, onions, garlic, all the good stuff. And then uh, add some cream, whip it together at the very end. Put that some homemade pasta. Thank you to whoever got that for us off our wedding registry, a, a pasta maker. <laughs> and it, look at it's really good. I'm an Italian. I'm going to love pasta. Like that's my bread and butter and what I go to. But that was, that was one of the good meals to send myself out on before evening time becomes pretty, uh, pretty scarce around here. I love that you're making your own pasta. That's the key. Like that is, that's fantastic. That's something that Laura and I have not jumped into yet. Uh, We will at some point. So we'll get into what I did, but to do what I did this week, I had to go to, uh, the store like uh, a department store out here and like buy some supplies. And one of the things I saw was a pasta maker and it was on sale. It was like a hundred dollars, like, like for a pasta maker. And I was like, should I do this? Like, I didn't do it, but I don't know. At some, at some point I'm going to have to do that. But part of it is like, I feel like if you're an Italian and look, I am as well. Like, are you cheating a little bit having the pasta maker instead Mm -hmm. of like using the rolling pin? Like, is that the, (laughs) Yeah, and I tried doing it the old-fashioned way a couple times, like years ago, and it just it yeah. never it didn't stick for me. It just wasn't very yeah, good. There yeah. was one time I had company over and tried to make gnocchi, and those suckers just wouldn't float. So, like, I I don't want to look like an idiot anymore. Uh, I bought we, we got the pasta made. We're going to just roll with that now. Yeah. So it was Laura and I's anniversary this week, and we uh, I did a couple of things. So I did a bucatini with like a cream sauce Mm. that had like a bit of garlic bit of chili didn't make the bucatini Mm. on my own pre-made bucatini but made the sauce um not quite an alfredo but like a you know a a creamy based sauce that was very good turned out great uh very pleased with it but the real thing i did is that for our anniversary laura who is the best wife bought me a patisserie book uh, of recipes that I can learn to bake from and improve my baking skills. Uh, It's like a book that has like a lot of skill-based stuff. And then it has like recipes. I started with like the very basic, just lemon meringue pie. I'm going to go through and make all of the recipes in this book at some point, but started with the lemon meringue pie, made the pastry, made uh, the curd. The curd was absolutely perfect i candied some lemon peel and put it like on top of the curd and then obviously did just like an awesome uh swiss meringue on top of it and it turned out absolutely fantastically um yeah it went it went really well uh just a a perfect gift just i couldn't couldn't uh, be more thankful for my wife for doing uh, that well happy anniversary and as you say that i think i just booked my flight out to australia to have some of that next time you're making it because that's <laughs> oh my god it's just it's everything that i love right there yeah yeah i think the next one is it's like this apple tart on croissant uh dough kind of thing that i'm gonna do i'm excited um 
But yeah, and then movies. Uh, I watched a few movies this week uh, mm-hmm. with Laura. We watched What Josiah Saw, which is this movie by a guy named Vincent Grayshaw, which was the bleakest movie I've ever like uh, bleakest movie I've seen in like two or three years, probably maybe not ever, but it was really good. It was incredibly well-made like the way it was shot, the way the images were framed. Like there's this sequence where it's from one of the characters perspectives and he's watching like a hallucination through like a drug hallucination through a doorway. And you're watching people like come through and pass the doorway. It's really impressively made. Mm. Um, and then I watched a movie called Moloch, which is like folk horror, like in that genre. Uh, it's like a Dutch movie that's in English. Uh, what else? What else did I see? Um, I think we talked about Nope last week. I saw Nope in theaters. Um, what, what, what else did we see? I just want to know where you find these movies. Like that's the obscure Those... Dylan Jones of Weber State find of a movie, a Dutch film shot in America. Yeah. Wow. Those those two were on Shutter. Uh, th- those weren't actually that hard to find. The, if you Laura and I go through Shutter pretty regularly and we find those. I saw Not Okay, which is this movie with Zoe Deutsch where she like how do I explain this? She like fakes being at a terrorist attack for social media clout. Um, it's a, it's like one of the most uncomfortable movies that you will watch. And she's amazing in it. I don't even know if I'd recommend it, but I finally watched hustle uh, as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, which was it, it, nice. Un- uncomfortable movies is the last thing I'll say here before we, we end the movie topic. Uh, the most uncomfortable moving watching movie watching experience I ever had was being 15 years old, going to see Knocked Up in theaters with my uh, high school girlfriend and her mother. So uh, there, there have there have been some really, really bad moments in terms of of uncomfortable movie watching experiences. I don't think I will ever be able to top that one, though. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> what was your thought process going into that? It's right in the title, Adam. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> No, no good thing could come of this is, is really basically what it comes down to. Yeah. It's in the title. <laughs> you can't even like come up with the excuse of like, Oh, I didn't know what this was going to be. No, I think this ended up being one of those uh, movies where, you know, she said she wanted to see it. And mom was like, well, if you're going to see it, you have to see it with me. And then I'm kind of there. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a time. Well, the good news is I finally just killed the mosquito slash fly that was buzzing around here. Let's so go. this is a good place to end the show on two hours, uh, <laughs> almost on the dot spins. Tell the people where they can find your work. Uh, follow me on Twitter at the box and one underscore or over on my Substack page, the box and one dot substack.com. And Sunday night here as we're recording Monday, actually releasing a piece pretty proud of that has to do with <laughs> the relationship between free th- positive free throw shooting and growth to become a three-point shooter in the NBA. So uh, be on the lookout for that one. But otherwise, just follow the Twitter. And Sam, always good to see you. It's always good to see you too. Go to Adam's YouTube channel, by the way. Uh, Adam Spinella uh, over on YouTube. One of the best NBA draft YouTube channels that you will find. Uh, Like I said, I wrote about Taylor Horton Tucker. I'm assuming there's going to be like a little bit of NBA action this week. You know, doesn't look like I 
I don't know. Maybe, I'm assuming that because Kevin Durant has said that he's staying in Brooklyn and the dams have broke a little bit with the Lakers, Pat Bev trade. I'm assuming that there's going to be a little bit of action this week. And if there is, I will write about it. If not, I may not write about it. And I will continue to start work on the 2023 NBA draft guide. That's where I'm at in my life at this point. I'm already starting the 2023 NBA draft guide. Um, But that's what's going on. We'll be back later this week with something fun on the podcast. And until next time, we will talk soon. 